Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 51. The big danger with a single free trade agreement is it's essentially reducing tariffs on the goods that you buy from your friends. If we'd been having this conversation 70 years ago, 1950, international trade would have comprised of building goods or digging them out of the ground or growing them and putting them on ships and waving goodbye to go off to some other country. I'm Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. Trade is a force for good, but with the current COVID-19 pandemic, a turn towards protectionism in many economies, the WTA facing its biggest challenges yet, the current trade outlook is unsettling and uncertain. The UK's trading regime after the end of the transition period yields much uncertainty and potential tariff reversals in just a few months. Today, we're talking about the power of good trade policy, how trade negotiations are done, and how to mitigate the negative effects of trade. Today, I'm joined by Professor L. Allen Winters, Director of UKTPO at the University of Sussex. Alan, welcome to Trade Finance Talks. Thanks very much, Deepesh. Uh, pleasure to be here. So to start off with, let's have a very quick introduction. So in no more than 30 seconds or less, who are you, where are you from, and what do you do? So I'm a professor of economics in the University of Sussex. I've been doing trade policy for very nearly 50 years now, or trade and trade policy. I've worked in the World Bank as director of research and chief economist in DFID and um, spent most of my life asking how trade helps people both in developed and in uh, developing countries. Thank you. So what does UKTPO do? So UKTPO is the UK Trade Policy Observatory. And we created it after the Brexit referendum a couple of days afterwards, because it became plain to us that people just did not understand international trade. We've been doing trade for decades in the University of Sussex among the economists, but we have lawyers, international relations specialists, business and management scholars as well. And our idea is essentially to use our expertise to try and explain what's going on, to try and influence things in a way that we think is useful, to raise questions that it seems like people haven't thought of. Suddenly taking responsibility for our own trade policy in the UK, frankly, is a big, big shock. There's not very much expertise. And since we felt we'd wasted our lives doing most of this, we ought to be sort of sharing what we think we've learned. Let's go back to the basics and talk about the theory of trade. Can you explain perhaps Adam Smith's model of absolute and comparative advantage? I, why is trade good? And perhaps also, why can trade be bad? Adam Smith's model of absolute advantage was very straightforward. It says, look, whichever country can produce something cheapest, that country ought to produce it. And that makes a huge amount of sense. That's when you go shopping, you go to the shop that offers for an identical good, the one that offers you the lowest price. But it had a flaw in it, which really David Ricardo in the early 19th century uncovered during the debates, actually, about the British Corn Laws. It's a real practical 
issue, not a theoretical issue. And Ricardo said, actually, you know, that's not quite right. What you really have to look at is comparative advantage. That's what are the relative costs of different goods in the two countries. So to give a really simple example, supposing you can produce either one car or one ton of wheat, and I can produce with the same amount of input, two cars or four tons of wheat. I'm more efficient than you. And Smith would have said, oh, so Alan ought to be producing all this stuff. But then what does Deepesh do? The real key is for Deepesh, you're trading off one car for one ton of wheat. I'm trading off one car for two tons of wheat. So if you want wheat, I ought to be producing it. And if you want cars, you ought to be producing it because that way it's cheaper. And if we don't quite meet the world's demand with that supply, then one of us has to do a little bit of both. But it's essentially the relative costs of producing different goods that determines trade. So that's why it's good, because if you get stuff produced by the country that is relatively the most efficient, you get more stuff. More stuff still seems to be good, except where are the problems? The first and very obvious problem is that if we're ticking along in a country that doesn't trade and I'm producing cars, we open up trade and now Deepesh produces all the cars, I lose my job, I have to start doing something else. That's uncomfortable. And maybe it's a very difficult transition. Second thing is, maybe there are things that are going on that actually make increasing international trade undesirable. Uh, for instance, carting stuff around the world does create some emissions. If we have a trade policy that says, oh, I'm going to let your tobacco in free of tariffs, maybe I'm going to cause a lot of health problems in my country. So essentially, we've got these two main reasons why trade can be upsetting. One is at an individual distributional level, somebody has to change what they're doing. And secondly, because of what economists call market failures, undertaking trade may worse some other feature of the economy. And that's what we need sometimes policy to address. I guess that leads on to our next point. So you've got the the advantages of competition and price, but then you do have some of the negative effects. How can policy help mitigate some of those negative effects of trade? And can you give any examples of good trade policy? Yes. The first thing to say is really all of this policy needs to be very closely targeted on the thing that is going wrong. If you go back to the simple example about comparative advantage, more stuff is better than less stuff. Actually, a liberal trade policy is ideally what you want. You only want to be tinkering with it when there's a clear problem. It's also the case you only want to tinker with trade where trade per se is the problem, or indeed there's absolutely no other way of going about it. So take the example of tobacco. We don't want to discourage people from smoking, so you would have an internal tax on tobacco. If you, for some reason, couldn't have an internal tax, or if actually you produce no tobacco yourself and only imported it, a tariff would be uh, welfare improving. So there is a case where you actually want to interfere with trade because you have another overriding objective. You need to be very careful, though, to make sure that there's not a better way of achieving those goals. 
So in general, a lot of the things that we people complain of uh, about international trade, oh, it encourages um, overconsumption of bad foods, oh, it uh, encourages countries to pollute their environments. Well, the real answer to those problems is to tax fatty foods to have environmental regulations at home. The big problem is if you use trade policy to tackle those problems, the problems just move inside your border and are even worse. But a good trade policy might be to keep out harmful goods. It might be at least to ease the speed of adjustment with which you say let a particular sector run down. There's over the course of say a decade, people have got a chance to move sectors or retire and for 10 10 years, no one is going into a sector. And that would also be potentially welfare improving, I think. So what is a trade agreement? And, And more specifically, what's a free trade agreement? Why don't all countries trade freely? So why don't countries trade freely? If it's so good, like I've painted so far, why do we need agreements? Why do we have to have governments uh, you know, uh, straining to give us free trade? The answer is largely actually those distributional issues. When you introduce trade, there's always somebody who's going to be outcompeted by foreigners. So for instance, Britain's policy over 200 years of importing food relatively cheaply is very good for you and for me, but not for farmers. The farmers object because it drives down the prices they get. So the problem essentially for trade policy domestically is this distributional issue. And there's always someone who is likely to lose and will resist it. So a trade agreement says, look, we need some encouragement to get our tariffs down to address our distributional issues. What would really help is if you did the same. At the same time as we were increasing our imports, we were increasing our exports to you. And therefore, in several countries, and ideally all countries move together, it's actually less disruptive. There are compensating pluses for some of the minuses. The biggest uh, trade agreement in the world is, in fact, the World Trade Organization. 164 members. It is an agreement about how you undertake trade. Free trade agreements are between smaller groups of countries, and they essentially, largely because it is within a smaller group and often within a single geographical region of the world, they can go further. So the World Trade Organization has encouraged trade liberalization very successfully in manufacturers among developed countries, but it hasn't managed to eliminate all protection on things like agriculture or in developing countries. Free trade agreements aim to reduce tariffs on all goods. And indeed, eventually, like within the European Union, to extend beyond mere tariffs and quotas on international trade to things like uh, regulation, to things like services trade. So a free trade agreement is a smaller group of countries, and it goes deeper than the World Trade Organization. So we've just recently heard, and the UK have agreed, the UK-Japan free trade agreement, and it's an important trading nation both ways. Is it all a good news story? And at what point would one back away from a negotiation, perhaps revert back to WTA trading terms? A really good news story would be that we had multilateral free trade. The big danger with a single free trade agreement is it's essentially reducing tariffs on the goods that you buy from your friends. 
And that obviously can distort things. You start to buy from your friends because you don't have to pay the tariff, but in fact, somebody else elsewhere in the world is cheaper. So free trade agreements are, in a sense, second best in the sense that they sort of focus your trade more heavily on one partner than perhaps a perfectly open world economy would do. Generally, they're held to be a step in the right direction. It doesn't always work out because they trick you into buying, as it were, from your friends rather than the most efficient supplier. But in general, relative to where we are in uh, 2021, a free trade agreement with Japan is probably welfare improving. It's not hugely welfare improving because Japan's tariffs are fairly low anyway. And of course, we would have been members of the EU-Japan free trade agreement if we had not left the European Union. Is it um, a thoroughly good thing? Well, in fact, it's going to reduce tariffs on 99% of all goods trade, they say, but it doesn't do a whole lot for services trade. And so, in a sense, the amount of benefit that it's bringing to the British economy, which, remember, is 80% services, is going to be somewhat limited. So I would characterize the uh, UK-Japan model um, free trade agreement as being good, but not a very big slice of good. So will new free trade agreements take up the slack when it comes to the end of the transitionary period on the 1st of January 2021? No, uh, not by a million miles. We're leaving two things when we leave the European Union. We're leaving the European Customs Union. A customs union is like a free trade agreement so that countries have essentially zero tariffs between each other. And they also agree at the same time to charge the same tariff to the rest of the world. And we are leaving that. But in addition, we're leaving the single market. And the single market, which was basically a British invention in the 1980s to help Europe pull out of the very early 1980s slump, was an idea that we should try and make the whole of the European Union into one single frictionless market uh, like a single country, so that we had compatible regulations. If you produce something in Britain, it worked, it could be sold without further bureaucracy in Italy or in Slovenia or in Poland. That allows you to have much freer trade between the countries, much more efficiency, and of course, great economies of scale. If you can, with an innovation, sell to 500 million pretty rich people, that's a real incentive to try and produce you know, a better sort of mousetrap, much better than producing one for 60 million and hoping and praying the other 440 million will let it in by, you know, in good grace. So uh, the single market not only affects goods, but also affects services. It's not complete in services, but it goes far, far further than any other agreement on services trade between sovereign nations. The OECD reckons that on average, the barriers to services trade within the European Union are one quarter of those, the barriers for EU trade with third countries in services. So the services market, and you know, as I said before, we're largely a service economy, is much more efficient. And that has supplemented by things like uh, free movement of labor. People can just move around to supply services. 
uh, means the market is just very, very much more efficient. So we leave the single market, we're giving all of that up. And even if we keep the same standards, because we're not committed to the same standards, and because we're not part of the same legal system, it's just not quite so secure. So that an Italian importing British goods is no longer totally confident that it meets Italian standards, and that if there was a problem, he can have redress going all the way up to the European Court of Justice. Now he realizes that he's got to look into it, he's got to check it up. If there's a dispute, it's a bit unclear how it will be settled because it's a dispute between two countries, not within one legal system. And so we lose quite a lot of trade. Almost all the estimates are uh, that uh, leaving the single market is going to cost us 4 or 5%, 6% of GDP. Free trade agreements sort of compensate for the customs union bit, and we reckon, and, and you know, a number of other analysts have come to the same sort of conclusion, that a free trade agreement between the UK and the EU would add about 1% to UK GDP relative to not having that free trade agreement. So we're essentially on minus five, minus six from coming out of the single market, plus one from getting an FTA with Europe. Uh, the FTA with Japan, and when we get them, the US, uh, Australia, and so on, are similarly small um, fractions of 1% of GDP. And so there's no way, in fact, where trading on uh, WTO terms or even with free trade agreements with the rest of the world compensates for the frictions that we're adding to the nearly 50% of our trade that uh, we undertake with the European Union. What needs to be done between now and the end of the transition period as it currently stands? I think the real priority for the period between now and the end of the transition is to get an agreement with the European Union. Free trade agreement, as I've said, will bring some benefits, not a full compensation for Brexit, but some benefits. That's worth having. But it's also very important, essentially, to restore relations with the European Union. Everybody accepts that um, after the transition, January the 1st, 2021, there are going to be all sorts of frictions on trade between the EU and the UK. And we expect this to be pretty disruptive. If we have an acrimonious no-deal exit, there's absolutely no incentive for French customs officers or indeed UK customs officers to be accommodating about getting goods through the port and so on. There's going to be very little incentive to have sort of sympathetic interpretations of regulations. I think that sort of bad atmosphere is going to make the disruption a lot worse and even possibly have longer-term effects. So I would make the absolute priority to come to a sort of harmonious deal, which actually starts to repair relations with um, the European Union and particularly our nearest neighbours among them. I would put other free trade agreements um, as a much lower priority. And uh, frankly, yeah, we've given up on getting the benefits of the single market. The European Union is quite clear. If you leave, you leave. You will not get uh, really any serious benefits out of the single market. So that's no longer on offer. So I think uh, yeah, we should focus all our efforts on getting goods trade and the atmospherics right 
And that's a big job for three months. And particularly given the way we're starting about it now. Yes. And, and the current pandemic, of course. I think it was said by Liam Fox back in 2017, this is going to be one of the easiest trade negotiations in history. Do you agree? And can you explain the process for how a trade negotiation is done and agreeing a deal? That was an outrageous bit of hubris. And um, I and plenty of other people told him so and told DIT, told anyone who will listen. It was just absurd. Trade agreements are difficult essentially because they raise these distributional issues that I talked about uh, 10 minutes ago. That requires a lot of internal politics. And the idea that you can change a trade relationship just by two ministers of trade meeting and signing a piece of paper is totally unrealistic. If a trade agreement isn't underpinned by a lot of staff work, a lot of internal politicking to try and make sure that constituencies domestically are not going to object, are going to be able to cope and so on, uh, they frankly just don't work. So in an ideal world, how do you go about it? So First of all, have the idea, wouldn't it be good if we had free trade with such and such a country? They have to come to the same conclusion as well. But then typically needs to be each country having a sort of internal process, formal or informal, but with quite a lot of consultation with interested parties, you know, not only industry and service providers, but you know, maybe also consumers groups, um, NGOs uh, concerned about the environment or human rights and so on. And each country comes up with a negotiating mandate. And in many countries, that has to be formally discussed by the legislature and becomes not exactly a piece of law, but with high status. It's not something the government can easily deviate from. Then you have rounds of trade talks. They're launched by the ministers who go for the photo op, but then it goes down to rather lower levels in the ministries. And if it's a trade agreement that involves more than just tariffs on goods, so it involves perhaps harmonizing some services, uh, regulation, um, agreeing intellectual property, um, regulations, um, devising rules for digital trade, all sorts of other ministries have to be involved. So you have then at sort of middle level of these ministries a lot of working meetings, and they gradually sort of work up towards the sort of the top of the pile. Yeah, halfway through you have a crisis, there's a lot of uh, gnashing of teeth and threats, and then it all settles down again. You do some more lower level and higher level official negotiation, until you get it down to a few points on which each side wants to stick. And at that stage, you let the ministers get involved and they come to some final deal. Once they come to a final deal, exactly like Liz Truss said with UK, Japan, we have agreed in principle. That means there are still details to be worked out by policy people. Then you have what's referred to in the trade as a legal scrub. The lawyers go through it and turn it into legally binding, unambiguous text. Then typically it will be signed. Then it has to be ratified. Then it has to be ratified. Different countries have different processes for ratification. They're extremely light in the UK. The government has almost unfettered powers to sign free trade agreements as it likes. But in most countries, that ratification involves the legislature, in Belgium, for instance, it involves the regional legislatures. You may remember the 
EU-Canadian deal, CETA, was held up by the Wallonian Parliament, and it takes you know, usually a couple of years after signature. In quite a lot of countries, you can apply some of the trade agreement provisionally before it's ratified and then have to undo it if you don't get ratification. But formally, you have to wait for this process of ratification. And then it is international law in the sense that international law, which is basically a set of conventions, how we live with each other as countries, holds treaties to be very high-level law, very sacred. You do not break treaties, or you do so only at your peril. Much more than a, a photo op and, and signing a piece of paper, right? A bit more to it than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. So, I mean, I guess taking more of a, a forward-looking view, so trade is fundamentally changing, and I think you've mentioned several times now the importance of trade and services too. The rise in technology, we've seen a change in consumer behavior and also an increasing complexity of of supply chains is, is led to the rise of global value chains, which we hear very frequently now. What is a global value chain and how are these poised to change in 2021? If we'd been having this conversation 70 years ago, 1950, international trade would have comprised of building goods or digging them out of the ground or growing them and putting them on ships and waving goodbye to go off to some other country. It was basically comprised of countries producing stuff at home and selling it abroad. What we found, um, basically with sort of technological changes in terms of where you produce stuff, but even more so technological changes in terms of how you control and manage stuff, uh, now you're sort of through the internet, that we can actually break up that production process. So that just like with comparative advantage we spoke about a few minutes ago, now you don't have to decide who's most efficient at producing a particular good. You ask who's most efficient at doing this particular process in producing that good. And so you have to, some American academics um, have christened trading tasks rather than trading goods. And that essentially is what a global value chain is. It's saying that actually what happens is that you start to produce a good and you do different stages in different places. And that involves moving. You process it in one place, you then move it to another place for the next processing, move it to another place for the next processing. Sort of satellite activities like design and branding that can be done sort of separately, only brought together at the end. But in principle, a global value chain involves moving things around across borders quite often so that tasks can in the place that is best equipped to undertake them. It takes huge amounts of coordination and uh, often investment so that people know absolutely what the good that they're getting is, exact specification, and they are committed to producing stuff with the exact specification the next stage requires. Because it's all done in different places, you can't tinker about if it doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, it's no use. So global value chains have sort of developed essentially with a whole pile of management and design, industrial design, operations research to make it all fit together. That seems to be very efficient. One of the problems is that if you've got a good that is produced in seven stages and stage five goes bad on you, you've got no good at all. The people working on the other six stages just are stuck 
and getting no value. And so the global value chains do open themselves up to very serious consequences from relatively small disruptions at some stage in the production. This is one of the reasons that development economists have argued so strongly for developing countries to get into global value chains they need to be able to make real commitments about their policy environment, that the government won't suddenly change the regulations, it won't suddenly introduce new taxes, and so on. What's happening now is that some of those global value chains have been uh, disrupted by COVID. Now, COVID has disrupted plenty of the world, so it's not just one stage, typically. But essentially, what we've discovered is that unless everybody you know, is functioning perfectly, you're going to you know, run short of stuff. And so there's been a lot of talk now about trying to make global value chains more resilient. And that has a number of aspects, but the most obvious element of resilience is, in fact, there's more than one location undertaking each stage, so that if one location goes down, the other location can take up quite a lot of the strain. There is a view that, for instance, in the US, you hear it a bit in Britain, you hear it a bit more in Europe, that value chain resilience means bringing stuff back inside the home economy. That's all fine and good if you really believe the home economy is going to be robust. But in fact, if you are producing a good and you bring all the stages back into Britain, and Britain has a, essentially a national lockdown, you, know, you are again stuck. So it's not at all clear that resilience actually means locating everything at home. What it means more is trying to have alternative routes through the chain so that, as it were, it's not all held up by one or two problems elsewhere. So global value chains have become a really important part of um, industrial production in uh, the last uh, 30 years, essentially, as I said, driven by the internet, our communications ability, our ability to manage these things. And I think there's quite a lot of view that they will shrink back in a little bit to become perhaps a little bit more regional, maybe a bit of uh, national reshoring. But I don't think we're going to find that value chains are going to disappear altogether because they offer such huge efficiencies in a number of ways. You know, if you've got very simple, uh, relatively unskilled jobs, paying somebody in the West $18 an hour to do them rather than somebody in a developing country a dollar an hour to do them. It's just such a big difference that you really want to find a way of taking that particular operation out to the developing country. Great. Thank you very much, Alan. And I guess building resilience in global value chains will continue to be a very pertinent theme as we move into next year. What other ways do you think trade is poised to change in, in 2021, if we know by then? And, and where will the burden fall? I think we don't know really how COVID is going to turn out yet. One of the things that we have learned is about electronic communications. We've got a lot more used to doing meetings by Zoom. We've come to understand there's quite a lot of things that don't require face-to-face um, -face contact 
or at least don't have to all be done at every stage by face-to-face contact. So I think we're going to find some decline in um, air travel. I think we are going to find a big boom in uh, digital activity. And that is likely, at least for those countries that have got um, decent infrastructure and decent sort of legal frameworks for it, the digital trade will become much more important. In the end, that's likely to be fairly competitive because through the internet, you can, in principle, shop in any place in the world. And as long as there are good logistics for getting it from there to where you are, that's going to outcompete uh, local producers. So I think the digital, we're going to see a lot more digital. I think that's going to increase competition in relatively simple goods. And that's sort of one of the changes we might anticipate. I don't think it's going to lead to a huge amount of reshoring of value chains because value chains are so valuable to uh, the people who have them. There'll probably be a bit of that. We'll see four or five years, a lot of excitement about producing the right pharmaceuticals, the right vaccines, um, personal protective equipment and so on. So there'll be quite a lot of activity around to the medical supplies, medical activities. But frankly, if we don't get hit by another virus uh, in the next decade, we'll have forgotten. You know, within a decade, people will be saying, why are, we, you know, why are we wasting all this money producing this stuff in six inefficient places? Let's just save the money and concentrate it in one efficient plant. So I think, you know, I don't know that there will be a permanent change, but in the medium term, there'll be changes there. Quite what else? I don't know. If I did know, I'd be investing and I'd be become very rich, but <laughs> I don't know. Of course, we don't have our crystal balls today. Alan, it's been an absolute pleasure having you today on Trade Finance Talks and discussing everything from the various theories of trade comparative and relative advantage, the importance of trade and services, particularly in and around digital trade and what that could offer in, in the future. The sheer amount of work required between now and the end of the UK transitionary period with the European Union, and also the importance of building resilient global value chains and the idea of what's coined as trade in tasks. Alan, thank you very much for joining us and we look forward to hearing back from you soon. Thanks for having me, Deepesh. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com. 